This is Startup Journeys with your host, Jesse Phillips. And for the show notes, you can check out the Startup Journeys page at my blog, jessejourneys.com. And for a visual of my travels, you can follow me on Instagram at jessejourneys. Today's episode features Jayesh Parikh, managing partner at Jungle Ventures, located in Singapore. Jayesh has a fascinating story and offers nuggets of wisdom to entrepreneurs and investors at all stages of the business cycle. He started his career at IBM, quit the cushy life cycle and founded nine startups, went on to co-found Sony Entertainment Television, and now is an active impact investor and venture investor at Jungle Ventures. In this conversation, we talk about everything from hiring the right CEO, the important qualities in startup entrepreneurs, and meditation. I learned a ton from Jayish, and I think you will too. And without further ado, let's go to the conversation. Five, four, three, two, one, go. Jayesh, I'm so excited to be here uh, at the Jungle Ventures office here in Singapore. Uh, I just walked through the city and the uh, beautiful orchid garden, and uh, I'm inspired by the, the mix of uh, nature and buildings. And so I am uh, I'm keen to learn about startup investing here in Singapore. And to kick it off, uh, as an investor, uh, what is one of the weirdest or most interesting pitches that you've received from an entrepreneur? Uh, Jesse, thank you for uh, talking to me. and. Uh... This is my first podcast ever, so I'm quite excited. Uh, the most weird uh, pitch that I heard was a young startup entrepreneur who's a techie geek, probably under the age of 25, who um, I asked, I said, hey, what are you working on? Because he was just coding away, and he says, I'm coding. I said, oh, terrific, what are you coding? Um, you know, who's your, who's your end user, who's your audience? He says, well, I haven't decided that yet. I said, okay. Um, are you funded? He says, no, I'm not funded. He says, well, have you figured out what the theme is? He says, no, I'm not. I'm just coding. I'm not, I haven't figured out what my theme is. So here is a guy, is a kid, who was uh, working on a startup. Uh, he didn't have any clarity on his product or service that he was going to offer. He had no clarity on the audience that he was going to talk to. And he had no absolutely zero idea about the business model that he was going to go after. Mm-hmm. And there he was, just completely inundated and totally intense about uh, going in and coding away some product or service that he was going to offer in the future. So I thought that was the weirdest and that that's probably the future. So he wanted financing just to kind of finance his coding that maybe would turn into a, Correct. a product. Without having any specific idea, it was like very fuzzy. And yeah. yet he thought that uh, that was the need of the hour that he he should be funded and he would he wanted to you know build something that was useful. Yeah, you know, and I wonder if he was reading some headlines of um, folks that got a ton of money in the, in the Bay Area or another area where there's a lot of kind of funny money floating around. Uh, it's interesting. That reminds me in a totally different corner of finance. Um, how SPACs were popular, special purpose acquisition corporations on a much larger scale, a group of folks who get together, put out their hand for money uh, and say, hey, we're going to go and uh, find something to acquire, but first give us the money. So, um, yeah, when things get frothy. Absolutely. There's just too much money floating around. But also, I think there is a lot of news and a lot of hype about exits, right? So when an organization gets sold for $19 billion, then a lot of eyebrows raise and say, hey, wow, you know, this is nothing. This is, this is such a simple application. Maybe I could also do it. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. People lose sight of how rare 
and unique that that really is. And in many cases, difficult. It it sounds it seems trivial, but it's not. It's a very difficult proposition to do what WhatsApp has done, for example. Yeah, it, it's true. And, and WhatsApp actually works very well. Um, and and the number of users is spectacular. And and the growth in Asia is spectacular compared to the United States. I keep keep hearing from my friends in US that many people still use iMessages and SMS text messages, whereas in Asia, the default messenger is uh, certainly WhatsApp. I see people using WhatsApp everywhere. I use WhatsApp now to communicate with friends and family at home. Um, I, I think in hindsight, it looks like a really good acquisition for Facebook, even even with the price tag. <laughs> I agree. So Jayesh, um, so you're, you're working, you're here as an investor at Jungle Ventures. Uh, you prior uh, prior to this, you were a co-founder um, at Sony, Sony Pictures, Entertainment Television. Entertainment Television. Uh, how did you get here? And tell me about your your background uh, and and kind of how that all comes together to to be a, an investor in startups. Sure. So uh, I was uh, I'm born and brought up in India, and I went to undergrad college in India, and. My grad school is University of Texas at Austin. After that, I went to work for IBM in Houston. And IBM was uh, non-existent in India. And so they sent me here to Singapore because they put a mercenary team together to start India as a country for IBM. And that's how I ended up in Singapore. Hmm. And uh, I worked for IBM for totally 12 and a half years. And then IBM succeeded in physically going onshore to India and started an office in Bangalore. And uh, I had never worked in India, and so I didn't want to go and work for IBM in India, nor did I want to go back to Houston to work for IBM in USA. So at that point in time, I quit IBM, and then I did nine startups. So that's how I actually ended up coming here to Singapore. And, and at IBM, you were selling software? The whole system. So I, was a, for, I started out in Houston as a systems engineer, which is basically technical marketing. So you mm -hmm. help a sales rep. And then while I was here in Singapore, I flipped to a salesman. So I was selling basically IBM, every all the products and services that IBM has. Yeah. As a salesman, I was a central person. Uh, the good news is that you know, because we were reasonably successful in our Indian operation uh, from Singapore, when IBM moved to India, now... IBM's largest headcount in the world is in India. So it was really? from zero. Now, IBM's headcount in India is higher, bigger than United States. Wow. Yes. So that, that's the journey. And at that point, then, um, I come from a business family. And so I was always itching to go into business or entrepreneurship. But I never got a chance because I was just happily, merrily working in IBM, which is a phenomenal company to work for. But when I got this transition point where I had to make a choice between going onshore to India or going away back to the United States, and that's the point in time I figured that this is my only chance I'm going to get. And so I quit IBM and I did nine startups. One of those startups was a jackpot, which is the Sony Entertainment Television. Let's just pause for a second. So you're in IBM, a large corporation, yeah. secure. You, you had done well uh, selling all types of software there. And you said, you know what? I, I want to quit and I want to kind of pursue this interest and passion and do startups totally not secure. Right. What, what do you think was the catalyst and what gave you the, the confidence to do that? Because I think... A lot of people dream about that and never right. can ultimately make the, the move. Yeah, so I think there are two things uh, that happen. One is that if I knew everything I know now, I would have never quit IBM because <laughs> I was here in Singapore as an expat. 
And so I have, at that point in time, both my kids were going to international school and we had expat living in Singapore. And when I quit IBM, all the bills started coming to me. And that's when I suddenly realized that, my God, this is a huge cost of living here. So if everything I knew, you know, which I know now, if I knew then, I would have never done it. But there was a entrepreneurial DNA spin in me because my in my whole family, uh, in my whole ancestral family, nobody has ever worked for anyone. Mm-hmm. My brother and I, we are the first generation who we have worked for someone. Interesting. And so I had that itch in me. But the thing that flips is really the risk-taking ability. So this is one of the things I tell entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. and I also tell people who are working in a professional company, in a professional capacity, that the biggest one challenge is not whether you have an idea or not, whether you have a team or not, whether you have funding or not. The biggest first uh, tick mark that you got to go through is, are you a risk taker? Mm-hmm. Can you take risk? Because like you said, I had a cushy life, I had everything going for me, I had a secure paycheck, amazing company like IBM. And for me to quit and do my own thing, I had that risk-taking ability in me, uh, though the risk level was much higher because I started a bit late. And and were you mindful of that risk-taking quality you had or was it just kind of innate? And and is is it only in hindsight that you realize kind of, hey, you know, I I had this quality that some people don't have. Right. No, so like I mentioned, I come from a business family and therefore I realized all along that I had that business, uh, the risk-taking ability. However, I studied engineering, and so because I was an undergrad, grad school in engineering, and then I had a technical job in the beginning, uh, I was not so business-oriented. But then as I uh, changed to the sales, then that business acumen started surfacing, and I figured that, listen, now I understand technology, I understand economics. I think that's really one of the success uh, factors for an enterprise to succeed is for an entrepreneur, a founder, a CEO to recognize the intersection of economics and technology mm-hmm. is really what succeeds. So if you look at the Bay Area, Silicon Valley companies, or you look at companies in Israel, this is one of the fundamental differences between those cultures versus other cultures. The other cultures where business is way far ahead, but they don't have that much digital or technical skills. Or there are other places where there's a huge bunch of technical skills, but the IP, the creativity, the business acumen is lacking, right? So you need that intersection. Yeah, and does, so, Singa- does Singapore fall uh, along one pole or is it a, a mix? I think it's now the technical skills are coming here. Over this last five years, I've seen the ecosystem develop. This is primarily otherwise a business mm-hmm. Banking and port, banking, yeah, exactly. So it's a it's a business community here who understands money making, who understands business, but not necessarily from a technical technology point of view. Of course, in the past we had a lot of manufacturing, high end manufacturing sites that came here. EDB, the Economic Development Board, invited a lot of companies to come and set up their platforms here in Singapore and the neighboring regions of Singapore. So there was that move. But in terms of entrepreneurial spirit, mm-hmm. I think. The risk-taking ability is just starting to develop, but more importantly, I think that the business skills were there, the technical skills are now growing. They're just mm-hmm. coming. The ecosystem is building quite nicely. Yeah, that, that, that's good to hear. Uh, so moving back for a moment, when you decided to quit IBM, mm-hmm. um, kind of jump into the deep end, uh, did you have an idea for a startup yet? Or or did you just say, right, so I my have, idea is to figure out an idea? Right. So. Uh, in IBM, we were two, a two-people team. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was the sales guy and I had a technical partner. And so both of us together decided that 
we wouldn't go back to our respective countries. So my partner, who's a technical systems engineer, is from Australia. And okay. I came from US. Uh, and both of us decided that Singapore was now going to be our home. So he's still there today in Singapore. He didn't move back to Australia. Mm-hmm. So both of us quit and we decided together that we'll make that team of sales and technology combination. And the only thing we knew is how to sell hmm. technology products. And you so the, the technical background. That's correct. And so that's all I knew. And then what we had to do is to find, source those products and services. So we had a few friends with whom we talked and spoke. And then we found a couple of organizations in the United States who allowed us to be their sales agents here in Singapore and in the neighboring region. And so that's the first business we went into, is basically selling products and services of larger companies. Okay, so you, so you would, the pitch was, hey, we're, we know sales, we know um, the technical side of things, right. we're in Singapore, let us help you penetrate this market. There's a big opportunity. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So okay. that's, that was the first wave. And then along that journey came this opportunity to start a television channel. Mm-hmm. So I have a friend who, two of them, they were thinking of creating a television channel, which is for the Indian Hindi speaking diaspora, mm-hmm. a general entertainment channel. And I knew nothing about television, but they felt that I had a technical background and a sales background. And also I have communication skills so that I would make a good team member and at that point in time, I asked my partner, the ex-IBM Australia friend, and uh, he said, yes, absolutely, by all means, you know, as long as you don't abandon the business that we're going doing, you can have your legs uh, spread you know, on, on two startups. And so, lo and behold, I said yes to that project, which at that point in time was called Ace TV. Mm-hmm. And then over and time- you had no, no prior media experience. I had no prior media, but my yeah. two partners did, and then we have other partners in that uh, who did have an understanding of the media business. And, and uh, we went out and you know, somehow managed to be shortlisted by Sony Pictures Entertainment. So Sony Pictures Entertainment is in LA, which is Columbia and TriStar Studio, mm-hmm. which is 100% owned by Sony, Sony Corporation of Japan. Right? Okay. So our partners were the Sony Corporation, but through the Sony Pictures Entertainment. And therefore, when we did the joint venture back in 95, we launched the channel. Uh, they allowed us to give it a name called Sony Entertainment Television. That Sony is the Sony Corporation. Okay, and so they provided some financing too. Both, so both parties came together yeah. and, and we did a joint venture where we provided finance, they provided finance, mm-hmm. we provided a film library and we had the expertise of India. So we knew India and then yeah. the uplink happened from Singapore. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we formed the joint venture. And they of course are the big muscle and they had all their library and then all their contacts and they had done many television channels before. Distribution. Distribution kind of and all of that, yeah. exactly. So, and then of course, both partners collectively agreed to uh, hire a professional CEO. Mm-hmm. So neither party got the CEO slot. We hired a professional CEO who then took the company through and, mm-hmm. and it was hugely successful. That was a jackpot in my life, which took me out to almost semi-retirement wow. back in 2013. So how long was the stretch of working on, on Sony? So that, yeah, so uh, again, I was, on the, I was an investor, a founder investor, and initially for the first two years, uh, three of us worked and helped in that company, but then it was a professionally run company. So we were mm-hmm. not full-time working for that company. We were on the board mm-hmm. and we were founder investors and shareholders mm-hmm. all through the journey. And it started in 1995, the channel launched, and then many, many channels launched along with it later on. So we now have a sports channel, and I mean, they have a sports channel, I still say we. So they had yeah. a sports channel, then they have a, a regional channel, they have a movie channel, 
So they have multiple channel network that has been built over time. We started with just one general entertainment channel wow. to begin with. And then over time it built. And in 2013, it basically got flushed out where remaining sh uh, shares, we sold it to Sony themselves. They had the first right of refusal and they exercised it and they bought all our shares. And in 2013, then we exited from that business. Mm -hmm. So it's 100% owned by Sony. Now it's 100% owned by Sony Pictures and Sony mm -hmm. Corporation. And at that point in time, I thought that I would retire and I yeah. did try to retire. It lasted a full one year. Yeah. And in that one year, I uh, discovered meditation. I discovered mindfulness. I discovered service space and I you know, served and, and, and the whole philanthropy. So I went through that whole journey and that whole thing lasted for one year. There's a whole ton of stuff that uh, I'm excited to talk to you about that. Uh, but, but before I do, I, I want to go back to the moment when, or the time when you were looking for a professional CEO, mm -hmm. uh, because I think this is one of the most challenging and important parts of, of business building is finding the right fit and the right talent, which can be difficult when you're looking outside of an organization. Um, and this is especially interesting because it, it's a unique, such a unique company where Part of it is um, having the Indian influence and, and knowledge about India, then the media understanding, and then Sony. Um, what was the strategy for finding a CEO? And, and was that an easy process? Was it? Did it take a few tries? Right. So I think we did have a false start. That's an excellent question because we we uh, thought that we'd found the perfect CEO. Uh, you know, amazing gentleman, the first CEO that we had, but uh, he came from the print media, and. This whole television media is a completely different animal. Mm -hmm. And so fairly soon, both all of us you know, collectively came to the conclusion that this was not the right person. And then we uh, you know, extended the, the search and we hired a professional search agency. And then we, of course, formed a team, both Sony Pictures and us. Now, Sony Pictures fortunately has the name and the brand so that people would, the senior level people would come and apply and want to work as a CEO of a, of a television company like Sony Entertainment Television. And then we had the understanding of India because the CEO is based in India. It's based mm -hmm. in Bombay. So mm -hmm. the Bombay Bollywood film, the television industry. So somebody who's connected with the Bollywood television industry, somebody who understands technology that requires for the television media channels, and somebody who has the blessings of a big corporate like Sony because they understand that this is a long, it's not a yeah. two or a three or five, four year startup that you get to a certain level and then you flip and you sell out, right? It's, it's, it's not one of these startups. Profile. It's a unique profile. And if yeah. we did find a, a person who did a superb job. He was a CEO for Sony Entertainment Television for 14 years and brought it to the level. Then we introduced cricket into it and we introduced a lot of like the Indian Idol, which is the American Idol show like that. Really? We introduced those things. And so there was a, you know, we raised the benchmark of television in India. I mean, we wow. uh, there was only one channel before us uh, in terms of cable and satellite. So there was a national television and then the cable and satellite television, we were the second entrance to it, but we raised the bar mm -hmm. and primarily because we had a good understanding of India and our partners had a good understanding of the whole television and media industry. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that was a, a good journey that ended, as I mentioned, in 2013. Yeah. And then I went into um, basically retirement. Yeah. Right? And yeah, a mini, a mini a retirement. A mini retirement, and I didn't yeah. didn't last uh, one year. And ultimately, I said, well, I have to find something to do. So I, the first thing that I started doing, uh, back when uh, we had our first exit in 2000. Since 2000, I've been doing angel investment. Okay. So I became an angel investor as I was exiting through the business, and. Uh, 
angel investing was very fascinating for me because uh, all the startups, all the ideas that I had, sometimes I wondered if I have the skills or the talent to put the team together and work on it full time, mm-hmm. right? Which I didn't. Whereas I found youngsters who were quite sharp, savvy, in many cases shrewd, who had the right, uh, you know, the right profile to pull out some of these ideas and then take it and nurture it. And they needed some seed funding. So I was a, I was a seed angel investor back then. And so I started seeding many of these companies. The other thing that I discovered as I was going along is something called impact investing, mm-hmm. right? So from a normal angel tech commercial investment, I then also started doing some angel investing, but in the social impact. So in social impact investing, it's investing in equity for profit, mm-hmm. but doing good. Kind of the, the double bottom line. The double bottom the, line. The buzzword now, yeah. But the most important thing about impact investing is that the intent of the company and the entrepreneur and the founder should be to do good. Yes. It can't be a byproduct. That is called socially responsible investing, and that's not what I do. Socially, SRI is different than I impact investing. And one more time, what's the difference? So socially respons- responsible investing is that I make investments, but I don't invest in Philip Morris, which is a tobacco company, or I don't invest in companies. Okay, that, right? it's more so category. Just, yeah, environmentally one. friendly and all of that. That's one thing. But here, the intent of it is that I want to eradicate poverty via say women's entrepreneurship mm-hmm. in the in rural India, for example, mm-hmm. or education, or mm-hmm. sanitation, yeah. or water. So the projects have to have the intent of doing good, but it is for profit. So that means there's an economic model. Yeah. And there are many, many startups which end up being a non-profit because they don't have an economic model, and therefore it cannot be for profit. So degenerative poverty eradication, for example, usually does not have economics associated with it. And so they become an NGO or a non-profit. Mm-hmm. A, a few things come to mind. Um, uh, the Grameen Bank, which does microfinancing, but is notably for-profit, it, it, it might be in a... Is that an example? That's correct. So now about? the new wave of Grameens, right? So fast forward, there are a lot of microfinance institutions in India uh, which have become for-profit, mm-hmm. right? And they grow and scale because of the equity platform that they have and the large uh, platform of the people of team that they, they put together. Uh, they grow significantly faster mm-hmm. and there are a lot of investors that come into the fold. So this is the other good thing that has happened now is that a lot of angel investors and VCs and impact funds have all started investing in this space. And the reason they do that is because in India, for example, which is the most successful in terms of impact investing space, the rural India doesn't have that much competition compared to urban India. Mm-hmm. Plus, the ability to pay for product and services in rural India is significant. Right? And so therefore, a lot of companies are looking at education in the rural India or you know, sanitation projects, women enterprise projects, etc. So a lot of investments are going into rural India now. And there the competition is also not as significant. And therefore, the IRRs are equal or sometimes even more mm-hmm. than urban India where the competition is a dog-eat-dog world. Now, where there's less competition, um, the risk profile might be higher because there's also less infrastructure. And is, that's that, the, is that a concern with investors? Usually, that's the first level. So somebody who's walking into the door always feels that this is a higher risk. Impact investing is a higher risk. Whereas based on a fund on which I am also an investment committee member of, which is called Avishkar. Avishkar means to discover. Avishkar is about a $93.5 million fund mm-hmm. uh, in India, 
which is which does impact investing. And what we have found there is that the risk profile of the companies that they invest in is a much lower risk. So it's a low risk, medium return, yeah. versus in the tech world where I live, which we'll talk about about general ventures, where it's a high risk, high reward. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is low risk, medium reward. Yeah, That's the difference because rural India, the requirement for product and services is incredibly high. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's a question of you going out to the rural India and executing the idea that you have, whether it is to make, create primary schools, whether it's to you know create some environment projects, whether it's energy related or whether it's some water project, etc. Mm-hmm. So I think it's only the question because the demand is huge in, mm-hmm. in, in rural India. Yeah, and, and so one follow-up question to the to this impact investing. Uh, in a nonprofit, to qualify as a nonprofit, in um, at least in the U.S. And, and I'm sure something similar in Singapore, mm-hmm. uh, you need to qualify through uh, the tax code and through certain right. standards. Right. What qualifies impact investing as making an impact, and is that totally subjective? It is. It is subjective at this okay. point in time. Typically, by and large, the angel investor would know, right, that the intent is to do. So, if it's a education project where they are creating some primary schools mm-hmm. right in in urban bombay for example or in rural maharashtra versus creating an, a schools in uh, northeast india for example yeah. right so it's a degree of difficulty but they understand and realize that this is being done basically as a social service mm-hmm. and a social impact yeah. right so i think that's clear the what is not clear is is it impact first or economics first, finance first, mm-hmm. right? So there are startups, social enterprise it's called. These social enterprises, some of them are finance first, which means their first uh, bottom line is make profit. Mm-hmm. Second bottom line is social impact. Yeah. And then some of them are first criteria is social impact. And then the second criteria is making sure that the economics and the profit works. Yeah, uh, it, it would seem to me so, that a firm that's truly doing impact investing would look at the impact first and let the finances And And just like the social entrepreneur has the option to be finance first or or, or impact first, Mm -hmm. angel investors like me also have that option, Mm -hmm. right? Because my sense is that if I have an allocation towards giving, and if I put that allocation towards impact investing, I want to make sure that there is a high degree that that money is going to come back to me so that I can pump it back and I keep cycling that money and continue to do more yeah. good than if I give grants and the money just goes away. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So in that case, I think it's okay for an angel investor, impact investor to choose a finance first also, as long mm-hmm. as social impact is happening. Yeah. Right. Because then the risk is lower. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. 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 That, that's awesome. That, that gets me really excited. Um, I just, I'm a believer in capitalism. I'm a believer in companies that generate profit. Um, and, and I believe in that. Uh, and I think it works because I think when you have a profit, like you said, you can pump that back into the into the mission of a company. And I think some of the world's best companies are those that have a mission first and continually reinvest their profits to, to prove that out. And um, yeah. So, so uh, super excited to hear and learn about that and learn uh, that you do that. Sure. And so then fast forward from there, uh, once uh, I came out of retirement and realized that I was not going to be able to retire and sit at home all day. And part of it is that my wife also wanted me to get out of home. Uh, I innocently, harmlessly introduced uh, two of my friends uh, 
who are the founders of Jungle Ventures. Mm-hmm. So they didn't know each other and I actually introduced them because one of them wanted to make investments and the other wanted to actually uh, ra- operate the investments. Mm-hmm. And so when I introduced the two of them, they went off and after a few meetings, they shook hands and gave it a name called Jungle Ventures and off they went. Mm-hmm. And I thought that my job was done. Yeah. And then one day they came back and said that, well, you are doing angel investment. And uh, if you're doing angel investments, why aren't you doing it with us? And I thought, well, that's fantastic because, you know, they would be, one of the two would be doing, the founder would be doing the due diligence and finding deals and sourcing deals and taking it all the way through. And therefore, I said that, yes, okay, I'd be happy to participate. What I didn't realize back then is that uh, you understand LP and GP, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So I thought that he just wanted me to be an LP. And, and for and so, those listening. Yes, so, so LP is a limited partner who's just an investor in a fund. And GP is the person, the general partner who actually runs the fund. So I thought that I was just going to be an investor mm-hmm. uh, right, in Jungle Ventures. And then they came back and they said, well, if you're investing and you're already, you've got a history of investing, and therefore, why don't you come and help us uh, run Jungle Ventures as well as a GP? Mm-hmm. And so at that point, we became a three-man team, which is the Jungle Ventures Fund 1, which is a small fund to begin with. And now we've just closed our second fund, which mm-hmm. is the Jungle Ventures Fund 2, which is, so the first fund was a $10 million fund. Mm-hmm. And then the second fund, we just closed on 31st of October for 100 million US. So 10X the first fund. Which, which was not, I mean, we didn't really think that we would want to make it that big, but investors kept coming. And, mm-hmm. and we basically, at 31st October, we basically said, no, I think this is it. 100 million is yeah. 10X and that's more T- than sufficient. Tough problem when you have to. Yes. Uh, and along there. the way, along the way, then of course we we uh, had one more addition to our team, and uh, David Gaudi, who's who used to work for TPG Growth, he joined us. So the original two founders, Amit and Anurag, and then now David Gaudi also is part of the team, and mm-hmm. he joined Jungle Ventures. So now we have four GPs in the fund that run this hundred million dollar fund. Mm-hmm. And and so what changes between Fund One and Fund Two now that you're working with 10x the capital? Yes. So uh, two things. One is that the LP-based, right? The investor base in Fund 1 was more angel and family offices. In Fund 2, we have institutions like Tamasic and EDB and Axel Partners, IFC. So we have many, and NRF National Research Foundation. So we have many marquee investors. And then mm-hmm. we have many family offices who have also invested. So that's one. The second is that the size, because of the $10 million size, we were doing only seed stage investing. Mm-hmm. And now what we do is seed and series A. So majority of our investment is three to $5 million, that range. But we also will do some emerging opportunistic half a million. So our range is half a million to 5 million, though you can realize that at half a million, it's gonna take a long time to deploy a hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I could see that. What's, uh, what's the ecosystem like in Singapore and Southeast Asia? Is the, is the fund, Focused. Where where is the fund focused? Yeah, first so off? What, what so we are based. Is? We are based in Singapore. Yeah, and we invest in Pan Asia. Okay, and we invest in tech and digital space and mobile and fintech. Right, the new new things. Mm-hmm. And we're based out of Singapore. We invest in Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, India. So far, we will potentially go to a couple more countries, but we've stayed away from China, Japan, Korea. Okay, we don't have an understanding, nor do we have a team, nor do we have the fund size to be able to go to those markets. Mm-hmm. Okay. The ecosystem, I guess your second question was the ecosystem in Singapore. I have actually watched it grow from as an angel investor from scratch. And and 10 years ago, there was nothing. Uh, there were only a bunch of small angel investors. And there was an organization called Bansi. There was just the initial stages. Uh, over time, the government decided and realized that it was time to actually 
get the ecosystem, the entrepreneurial ecosystem to grow. So National Research Foundation, which is the Prime Minister's office, it's, a, it's an office in the Prime Minister's office, uh, they decided to actually help some bring some VCs into Singapore. Mm-hmm. So there are VCs in Singapore who get f- co-funded by National Research Foundation, NRF. So that it's called the te- Technology Incubator Scheme. Mm-hmm. So the first scheme was called Technology Incubator Scheme, where the government would co-invest along with us. So they had a beauty parade and they chose, and Jungle Ventures, we were one of the uh, organizations that were firms that they agreed to participate in this particular co-investment strategy. Then subsequently going forward in this current fund, they've done an EVF, which is a 10 million co-investment. So they have invested $10 million also into our fund. And that's a co-investment. So we have to bring 10 million, they have to bring 10 million. And then collectively mm. we go out and, and and this is really a huge help. So the whole ecosystem has grown in the last five years. Yeah. There's a very famous building here called Block 71. There was no Block 71. And then Block 71 basically was an industrial uh, uh, building mm-hmm. and which was empty and they populated that with startups and gave it to them yeah. at a very low rent and with this combination of creating that ecosystem with the infrastructure of block 71 mm-hmm. which is the starting point yeah. and then a lot of higher learning institutes like NUS uh, they came into the fore and so I think it's a combination which has now fast forward today we have a very healthy ecosystem here in Singapore we That's invest awesome. a lot of our funds here in Singapore also and, and then a percentage of it then goes to the other countries. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic to, to hear about the growth of the ecosystem here. Before, uh, before meeting with you today, I did a quick Wikipedia search and uh, I found that there's 13 official languages in Southeast, A- Southeast Asia. There's 25 other languages. And in addition to that, there's many more local langu- languages with just as many ethnic groups. Does that affect your investing at all? Yeah, uh, does yeah. that impact the, the scalability of your companies? So yes and no. There's good news in that, that that's our USP. Mm-hmm. Uh, any US-based investor VC or a Europe VC could quickly come into Asia had it not been for this uh, disjointed mm-hmm. countries, different cultures, different languages, different system of doing business and different languages so it's not so easy to just go out then and roll a product into each of these countries many of them have a requirement for languages many of them have requirements for example in some countries credit card is is very common on terms of e-commerce so for example singapore and hong kong yes. and then there are many countries like indonesia where it's a huge population but credit card penetration is relatively low and it's growing mm-hmm. same thing with india for example so each of these countries are heterogeneous from that point of view which is a unique advantage for us in frankly uh, because we know this ecosystem quite well so that if we have a company which is in indonesia we can bring quickly bring their products and services to singapore and malaysia and vice versa from malaysia we could take them to the other countries and Thai, for example thailand vietnam so all of these countries we have a reasonably good understanding and these investments are basically being done because of the team and the idea, mm-hmm. right? Ultimately, yes, there is a differences in, in all these in these cultures, but ultimately for us, the most important thing is the team with a fantastic idea. Mm-hmm. Right? Once that is in place, then the rest of it is execution, wherein we have these difficulties. Mm-hmm. And so you're underwriting an idea and a team first and foremost. Absolutely. And it could be pre-revenue, uh, it could in be most cases, financials. So in, in, in fund one, most of them were pre-revenue, right? Yeah. In some cases, there's just bare bones MVP, right? Minimum mm-hmm. viable product. And even now, in many cases, we have pre-revenue companies or just barely just initial revenue companies. But again, 
the team is really the most important for me mm-hmm. and because even if the idea is not 100% perfected uh, we can easily guide them motivate them mentor them advise them to fine tune and pivot mm-hmm. right so that if it's a good team they'll pivot and find the right answers yes. such that they will build a huge community and hopefully build a huge revenue right yeah. so no longer are those days when you just built a rev- community now people are asking the question about business model as well right so the times are changing yes yes um and so what are some irreplaceable qualities of teams that that you look at um, that kind of jump out to you as uh, a team that you can operate. Right. So I think one is this intersection of technology and economics, right? That I talked about. Mm-hmm. So if it's just a tech team and they are incredibly smart technology geeks, that by itself doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. The business acumen is also important. Whereas if you've got some people who are just business acumen but they don't understand technology, they're going to outsource creating a product and service. Right. Then I'm a bit nervous about that, mm-hmm. right? So I think what I look for is that combination. Saying that, hey, do they have the right balance of business acumen? Mm-hmm. Are they going to be able to build a business out of this, which has got a business model and revenues over time? And then are they technically savvy enough, mm-hmm. right, to be able to? And then in most cases, the question is, are they going to build a product which is a creative IP, or is it a service which is a me too? Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of copy-paste, me-too kind of products and services that do come into Asia. Many of them do work, so there's no harm in doing it as long as you can customize it for local use, the local UI, UX. I think there's no harm in that. Personally, I get excited about creative IPs because I've been investing before on the West Coast also, so I've seen a lot of Silicon Valley's companies and we get excited about that. And of course, we would love to slowly bring some of that creativity into the Asian ecosystem Mm -hmm. uh, with Singapore as the base where we create some phenomenal big companies yeah like apple and google and facebook yeah yeah that that would be awesome yeah. um so so you're looking not for marginally improved products but new products this this kind of reminds me of uh peter Thiel zero to one yes. concept um and, and that makes sense to me and and, yeah. and and it seems like those are the ideas that can Yeah, Yeah. yeah. so I think what we have to do because we are fund managers, we have to have a balance. Uh, On one extreme, there is this contrarian investment strategy where we're going to do high risk, very high risk, contrarian, zero or one. Yeah, right. Binary. Binary. It works or it doesn't work. We can't have, so we have an allocation to that contrarian emerging opportunistic investing. Mm -hmm. And we put in a half a million dollars, for example, or a million dollars, and then we'll watch it. And as it grows, we'll invest along with it because it's very high risk. And if we lose, then we'll lose that half a million. Kind of buying an option on, That's the, on the upside. Whereas our mainstream has to be reasonably well thought through. And it can't be just completely a new uh, creative idea, which has never been done before, which is a very high risk. So we have to be careful to make sure that we invest across the board because we have to make sure that you know the IRR has a blended IRR. Yeah. Yeah, that works. Totally. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Um, so let's talk about one other thing, which I'm, I'm really interested, and that's meditation. Okay. And, and we didn't chat about this before, um, mm-hmm. but I'm a, I started meditating about a year ago. It's an it's a interest of mine. Um, how has meditation uh, helped you at all since you started in your mini retirement? Um, if at all, and, and what kind of meditation do you do? Yeah. So I have, uh, when I was in college, I used to do transcendental meditation. So I discovered that in college, uh, the main reason was somebody told me that it's free. So that was that price was right. And so I went yeah. and learned transcendental meditation and I used to do that during college. Then it sort of fizzled out until, you know, recently, 
and I went to Vipassana meditation. So mm-hmm. I learned Vipassana meditation technique. Vipassana. So Vipassana. It's an old Buddhist tradition that has come filtered forward. And, and now I do a, a blend of Zen meditation and Vipassana meditation. Mm-hmm. I think the benefits of meditation has been written all over the place. And it's theory and practice. So the theory, everybody understands that meditation does some good because it's written all over the place, right? But the practice of it is different things for different people, right? So some people meditate with a chant. Mm -hmm. Some people, mantra. mantra. Some people just close their eyes and think that if they don't think, then that's meditation, which is, so there is no right or wrong way. There are so many different styles and techniques of meditation that are out there. And you just have to practice it till you find one that sits well with you, Yeah. right? And the whole good news, the news, the good news about meditation is that the benefits are all over the, all over the place. So some of the benefits, for example, is that it centers you. Mm-hmm. Some of the benefits is that it gives you equanimity, right? It, it also uh, improves, according to me, the decision-making uh, part of the brain, mm-hmm. right? And so when I, uh, meditate and come out of it many a times I can see clarity I can see clearly so there's a clarity of thought that happens and so I feel that I'm a well-composed calm now Uh, I'm not all over the place hyper running here and there helter-skelter I feel centered I feel amazing and and that along with that comes mindfulness Mm -hmm. and compassion Mm -hmm. and uh, that's a wholesome holistic you know ascent yeah, so, so it not only feels good, but it's strategic uh, and uh, helps you be mindful and compassionate. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I've found uh, I've found that too, and I've only been doing it for a little a little bit, um, but uh, I really like the practice. So so it's it's interesting to hear your experiences with it as well. Um, well, Jayesh, this has been a, a fascinating conversation talking about everything from impact investing uh, to meditation. I have. Two final questions okay. for you before before we wrap this up. Mm-hmm. Who's an investor or an investment firm that you look up to? So, I mean, the answer has to be Sequoia. Sequoia, right? okay. Uh, just at the end of the day, IRR is the ultimate game. Mm-hmm. Anybody can talk about making fantastic investments. If it's a one-off investment, so someone invested in Google right in the beginning and has now become a billionaire, right. that doesn't itself make the, that the best investment uh, person or a yeah. company. Sequoia has just somehow figured out a process which is just so well-driven, well-orchestrated, and the leadership is so phenomenal that if you actually go through, and I don't have all the exact speeds and feeds in terms of the numbers, but if you see the number of unicorns or if you see the returns in terms of all their investments that they've made, the funds, so many funds that they've gone through, I think they're probably one of the most successful investors uh, we see in the world. Yeah. I think that's right, and especially the WhatsApp investment alone, um, you know, makes their whole fund. But right. on top of that, they have they have right. several others. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's impressive. Um, and then finally, unrelated to investing, if someone's visiting Singapore for the first time, what do you think uh, is the top thing to do here, or just one interesting thing that maybe is a less touristy thing? I think it's the discovery more than anything. If uh, someone comes here with an intellectual mindset, 
and tries to figure out why does Singapore work. Singapore is the most neutral place by and large. You go anywhere in the world, you'll hear people saying good things about Singapore by and large. They'll have something good to say. And what is it that works here in Singapore? I think that discovery is a combination of East and West. So we have the glass and metal, we have the Western education system, we mm -hmm. have the Western investment business capitalist theories and society. Mm -hmm. And so there, that's one side of the equation, which is the West. And yet we have the East. So we have the Chinese and the Malay and the Indian population who all coexist cohesively, right? Comprehensively. Mm -hmm. And they all get along. Mm -hmm. and, and as best, I mean, again, there are stories that do come out, but by and large, right, they get along. And I think it's this East and West combination. And on top of it is the law and order, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. and the education system is fantastic. And the government, that's the best part of it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we are the least corrupt government in the world. Wow. So somehow, Singapore has figured out economics through things like tourism, refining center, and, and manufacturing, and banking now, right? So a few industries. So the economics works. But even the spirit of Singapore, right? Mm -hmm. The soft spirit of Singapore also, mm -hmm is something that they actually consciously work on. It's not there completely. Uh, we're all working towards it. But I think the discovery of why does Singapore work, mm -hmm. different people have different thoughts. It's like, you know, looking at an elephant from six different sides yeah. and trying to discover it. Yeah. And I think that's really exciting to me when friends of mine come from different countries. Mm -hmm. When I ask them, their, their, their perception of why Singapore works is different for different people. Yeah, well, having been here for almost a week, what you're saying resonates with me. It really is uh, an eclectic, multicultural uh, city, and uh, it's it's been really fun staying here. Uh, and, and it's hot and humid, so that's the only one thing that we have to make sure. Yeah, and it's, it's hot and humid. It's, it's hot and humid. That, that, that's true. Jayesh, thanks so much for uh, for chatting with me today. This was really a fascinating conversation. Uh, my first podcast ever, Jesse. I'll remember this. Thanks for tuning in to episode four of Startup Journeys, and a big thank you to Andy Hamilton at the Ice House for introducing me to Jayesh. As always, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, and suggestions. Email me at startupjourneys at gmail.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at jessejourneys and check out my blog at jessejourneys.com. If you like what you heard, give it a review. I'm Jesse Phillips, and this is Startup Journeys. Startup Journeys.